0: It has been my pleasure these last couple of weeks to be in a conversation with our congregation around the amazing story of God's work through his servant, the prophet Daniel, and his best friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you are just joining us this morning for this whole conversation, let me just say that I don't know that there could be a more relevant uh, series of discussions for life in America today. Uh, Because Daniel and his friends uh, found themselves as servants of God in the midst of what was a very alien culture for them. Uh, They were uh, taken out of their homes as uh, teenagers. They were um, uh, subjected to watching their native land destroyed by war. Uh, They were then taken in a slave train and hundreds of miles to the foreign city of Babylon and the nation of Babylonia, the great superpower of that age. They were indoctrinated into the ways of Babylon. They were given new names. And in the midst of all of this, they constantly had to struggle to maintain their sense of identity, to maintain a sense of who they were and whose they were, amidst all of the pressures to lose that and to become just uh, enculturated in this very pagan culture they were living in. And the story of how they maintained clarity and courage, what I've been calling lion-heartedness, in the midst of that context, I think has a lot to tell us, Uh, those of us who are trying to walk the way of Jesus in a world and in a culture that doesn't always um, go big in for the way of Jesus. Um, So today, I wanna just invite you to think with me about um, this storyline. We're gonna pick it up in the fifth chapter of Daniel's um, story. We're gonna be coming back to that chapter uh, next week as we finish it up, the kind of the sequel to the action that we'll uh, explore today. But before we jump in, let me just invite you one more time to bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for the joy of watching Uh, Your hand moving in this place, um, touching hearts. Thank you for the wonderful people that were just up here on this platform and for the way they are responding to you, giving themselves to your service. Uh, Help us now as we listen to your word um, to know what it is that you're saying to us, what it is that you're asking of us, and then give us courage to go forth and live it. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want you to imagine, if you would, that you're in the midst of maybe one of the greatest parties you've ever seen. Or maybe it's, a, it's the kind of setting that you, in your own life experience, have been part of at one time or another. But I want you to picture that you're in this gigantic ballroom. And it is absolutely thronging with people. In fact, there's so many uh, celebrants in this particular place that they're overspilling the room and out into these beautiful lit courtyards with trees in them that are all around. And I want you to picture that the air in this room is filled with the strains of beautiful music as this fantastic orchestra is playing and accompanying a whole string of singers and dancers that are coming up and performing while everybody's just enjoying the meal. And the meal is being eaten at these long tables that are all over, filling this vast space. And the candlelight at all of these different tables is glittering off of the golden bangles and the beautiful jewelry and the sparkling smiles of this a beautiful group of people that are attended there. And, and between the, the tables, there are these servants going by and they're carrying these platters that are heavily laden with steaming mounds of marvelous mouth-watering food. And, and they're being very careful because it's it's so crowded. They don't want to trip on anybody and accidentally spill some of the gravy on the beautiful uh, embroidered robes of the guests or mess up the spectacular woven carpets of this magnificent magnificent ballroom and you can hear the laughter at all of the tables as conversation is going on and people are talking about the latest juicy gossip about who did what with whom and and who's were rising up to power and who wore what and All of the kinds of things that people talk about when we get together and there's the sound of these conversations and the clink of fine silver on beautiful porcelain. It could be the finest uh, after Oscar gathering in America life. It could be a New Year's Eve at the Ritz Carlton, but in actuality it was the palace of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and the year was 539 B.C. It had been 23 years since old King Nebuchadnezzar had died. Nebuchadnezzar had been one of the greatest uh, lords of ancient times. He had uh, managed to hold on to his throne for 40 plus years, absolutely unheard of in ancient times where there were constantly rotating leaders and coups, but he had managed during that period of time to build up this magnificent influential empire, and now he was gone. He'd been gone for more than two decades now, and the passing of Nebuchadnezzar had led to a period of tremendous volatility in Babylon. Uh, It had led to a series of very short-lived administrations, punctuated with assassinations and scandal. I wish we had time to go into all of the scandal. You'd find that fascinating. Um, But at long last, a bloody coup had occurred, and it had put a general by the name of Nabonidus on the throne. And Nabonidus was a very strong leader, and he now, for the first time in a long period of time, is able to to rack up quite a few years of sustained leadership. He's in in power for some 17 years. Truthfully, however, Nabonidus didn't really particularly care for this part of the work. Nabonidus loved trade. And he was always out of the capital city, off in Arabia, shoring up the trade alliances or or supervising some of the archaeological excavations that were going on in Samaria. Domestic affairs were not his gig. He really preferred to leave those things to somebody else. And fortunately, he had somebody else. He left those things to his son and co-regent, a man by the name of Belshazzar. Belshazzar. The problem was that Belshazzar was nowhere near as gifted as his father. He lacked the moral uh, fiber. He lacked the leadership uh, savvy and strength. He lacked the intellectual horsepower, frankly, in a way that that made him unequal to the task of holding together what was now a severely decaying empire. And, And rotting, indeed, it was. The sense of noblesse oblige or the sense of of responsibility that comes with great resources had all but evacuated the Babylonian culture by this time, at least the upper reaches of that culture. And the poor in the cities of Babylon were crying out for help. Uh, they, they They were desperately struggling, but the administration of Babylon no longer really was seriously committed to lifting up the lives of everybody. Uh, Ultimately, the sheltered wealthy grew more and more disconnected with the affairs of what was going on for normal people, and they became more and more addicted to the constant stream of decadent pleasures that the affluence of that society were making readily available at that time. Immense sexual license was the order of the day. It was not just tolerated, it was actually glorified. And and trial marriages were in... People just sort of shacked up together and tried it for a little while and then could just dispose of each other Uh, whenever they felt like it. Very easily this became actually the normative pattern for relationships in Babylon. And, and, And sexual taboo breaking and involvement with temple prostitution became so much a regular part of the life there that even the very liberal Greeks referred to Babylon as a sink of iniquity. The Greeks were really progressive, but the Babylonians were like way over the line. They were just scary in in the way their morals uh, were so fluid. Um, Religion provided absolutely no uh, restraining influence on this downward slide. In fact, uh, according to an historian of that time, one official census listed, get this, some 65,000 recognized gods. Everybody had their own designer deity. A God who would approve of everything that they did, did, that supported everything they believed, politically, economically, socially. Everybody had their own God in Babylon in that day. So in the words of the historian Will Durant, in the midst of this spiritual swamp, the army fell into disorder. Uh, Business people forgot the love of country and the sublime internationalism of finance. The people who were busy with trade and pleasure unlearned the arts of war. The priests usurped more and more of the royal power and fattened their treasuries with wealth that just tempted invasion and conquest by other nations. And as the moral hollowness at the center of Babylonia grew. All that was left of this once formidable civilization, this world influencing civilization, all that was left in in, in a sense were, were its walls. And the Babylonians were big on walls. And that's important to understand to really appreciate the story that we're gonna read today. Uh, Because the ancient historian Herodotus tells us that the city of Babylon itself was surrounded by these massive double walls. Each of the walls was 25 feet thick. I mean, just picture that. You know, that's this whole center section here. A wall that thick. And there were two of these walls, and in the middle between the walls was a moat. And these walls were like two to 300 feet high the length of a football field in height. Are you getting this picture? And on top of the outer wall, there ran this broad highway uh, upon which traffic could move all around the 56-mile perimeter of the city. They could send troops, uh, archers, uh, boiling oil at a moment's notice to address any stupid, foolish person that thought to try and somehow climb up the walls or attack the city. In fact, they were known, the Babylonians were known for actually loving it when people tried to attack their city. And they were known, this was reported by another historian, they would go to a part of, this, of the wall where somebody was, some army was trying to attack and they would shout down, till mules fall, you'll never take our city, which was the ancient equivalent of till pigs fly okay? Um, And because um, this city also was so vast, if some errant nation tried to threaten the people of Babylonia, the outside people, the farmers and so on, could flee inside of the city through any one of some 100 heavily fortified gates. And once they were inside, there was so much farmland inside the walls of the city, they could support life for these people for like a very long time. And because the river Euphrates actually flowed underneath one of these heavily fortified gates, they had a fresh water supply forever. Which is why when people did try to attack, the Babylonians were not nervous generally. They just weren't all that concerned. So it's with this same absolute confidence in their impregnable life that the elite of Babylon gathered one particular night in the palace of King Belshazzar for the party that I was describing to you earlier. Now, that's setting the stage. That's the whole context for what we're about to read. Are you with me? All right. Verse 1, chapter 5. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a party where people are drinking wine, but there comes a time after a little while that people begin to get a little sleepy. The party loses a little bit of its energy. And in this particular instance, that is apparently what occurred uh, because we're told in the text that Belshazzar, while drinking his wine, uh, hit upon a colorful idea. I think it's intriguing that they give us that little detail that Belshazzar had, had a few too. And, and he hits on this colorful idea. Now, why he hits on this idea I'm about to describe is not entirely clear. Maybe he's feeling a little bit edgy. Maybe he's he's a little concerned. Maybe Maybe the fact that there are Persian armies amassed outside the walls actually is creating a little bit of anxiety for Belshazzar. So maybe he needs a little distraction. Maybe he wants to remind himself that he's strong and powerful. Uh, or maybe he just is noticing that that the energy is going out of the of the uh, the crowd, and to shore up his image in front of the crowd and to build up their their uh, their. Um, energy and excitement uh, after a few cocktails, he remembers that in one of his storehouses, uh, he has some very interesting relics. Uh, These relics that are sure to amuse and to enliven his guests with a reminder of just how big, bad, and bold Babylon is. And so, Verse 2 tells us that Belshazzar gave orders for his servants to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, actually it was his grandfather, but they used those terms interchangeably in those days, his, his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had, and this is the key part, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He had taken these things from the temple in Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar had, and, and Belshazzar is now calling them out of the storehouse. Why? we're told, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now to get at what's going on here, it's really important to understand what these uh, bowls and goblets were that we're talking about here. Centuries before, King Solomon of Israel, you may have heard of him, one of the notoriously wise people of human history, and also an extremely wealthy man. Uh, Solomon had ordered the construction, uh, or actually his father David had ordered it. He actually executed it. He built a huge temple. It's one of the wonders of that time in in history, this huge temple in Jerusalem. And as a show of respect uh, and of reverence for the incalculable worth and glory of the God that this temple existed to serve, Solomon had also ordered that the temple be equipped with a magnificent collection of bowls and goblets that were to be used by the priests and the people in in the worship of the Almighty God. Uh, The bowls uh, were used as um, bowls in rites of purification. They would hold water that people would come to these bowls and they would wash themselves ceremonially as an, as an indicator that they understood that before the purity and perfection of God, they were, they were in need of cleansing. And so these bowls were, were expressly for that purpose. The goblets that they had were, um, were used at the time of the Passover, and wine would be poured into the goblets at the time of the Passover to commemorate the time when God freed his people from bondage. And not just to remember that God had set them free from bondage in Egypt, but that it had cost the sacrifice of innocent lambs, the blood of the lambs, uh, in order to to, um, bring about the atonement for sin and the freedom of God's people from slavery, from bondage. Uh, And so these goblets were used uh, at this Passover time. Um, To kind of translate this, these ancient Hebrew vessels were the equivalent, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, they were equivalent to having the actual bowl that Jesus used on the night in which he was betrayed that he sat that on the ground and used to wash the feet of each of his disciples. Imagine that you actually had that in your house, the bowl. Or if you had the actual goblet that Jesus used Uh, On the night in which he was betrayed, when he lifted it up, poured the wine in, lifted it up and declared that this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Imagine you had that chalice, the actual chalice in your possession. This, this um, This is the set of vessels, in a sense, that Belshazzar calls out of the basement to be brought up and to be used at the party. Um, So these sacred vessels had been taken by a bunch of grimy, fingered soldiers. Uh, They'd stolen it from the great temple at Jerusalem as they sacked it and destroyed it. It was these holy objects whose sole purpose was the glorification of God that Belshazzar ordered drawn out of storage for the purpose of stroking his ego. Uh, it was these vessels that had been set aside for, for, for the uh, humble and heartfelt worship of the most highly God, the one God who had said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not um, uh, make and worship any graven image, anything made of wood or stone or, or, or that kind of thing. It was, it was these vessels commissioned by this God that, ironically, uh, Belshazzar and his guests, as verse 4 reports, "...drank the wine from while they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone." Verse 4. It was these things they used for that purpose. Are you getting the irony? Are you getting, like, the blasphemy of this? I think it's a miracle of God's grace, that there is not a blast crater the size of Iowa, where Babylon uh, was. Seriously. I mean, <laughs> given you understand the circumstances, you would expect this would be like an Indiana Jones moment. You remember that scene in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the, the, the uh, Nazi soldiers are, are, you know, trivializing the Ark, trying to use it as a, to, to stoke their own power, and... and uh, and God melts them. <laughs> you remember that scene, uh, or or that scene in in uh, the uh, uh, is it the one about the chalice? What's the name of that one? The, the Last Crusade. Yes, The Last Crusade. Thank you. I need all the help I can get up here. Keep it coming. Uh, where the unworthy person, you know, tries to drink from the cup and is, you know, is vaporized. Right. This is what you should have expected to have happened in this particular moment, because. Belshazzar is so badly misusing uh, these sacred vessels, these symbols of divine worship. But it doesn't happen that way. Uh, God doesn't just do that in that moment. And went, the more I started thinking about this story, the more I thought, you know, I am actually quite thankful that, that God does not always immediately give us what we deserve when we're misusing sacred vessels because if you think about it God has put into our hands yours and mine all kinds of really sacred vessels for for his worship and glory and purposes and his word the scriptures tell us something about how these things are meant to be handled so, so at the risk of being highly you know politically or culturally incorrect let me, let me just name what I think is the reality of some of this For example, we've been given the vessel of full sexual expression. And and the the way it gets used today very often is for momentary pleasure or for a somewhat casual social connection as people hook up with each other. When in actuality, that vessel he gave us, the scriptures say, was meant to be used to honor and bond to and discover joyfully someone in whom we're going to invest our lives in a sacred covenant, the way God covenants to us. How are we using that vessel today? Or or, or the vessel of speech. I think all of us have been given that one too. But that vessel is, is not intended to primarily be used to make us look good or to put other people in their place. The vessel of speech is meant to be used to give praise and glory to God and to edify, which literally means to build up other people. It's one of the most powerful capacities we have when it's used for good, to build up and to encourage other people. Or the vessel of earthly treasure. Think about that one. It's not intended to be used to lavish luxury after unnecessary luxury upon ourselves. The vessel of earthen treasure is meant so that we will have a sufficient lifestyle for ourselves, but also that we might have the capacity to help others who have needs that aren't sufficient, that aren't sufficiently met. This is why God gives this treasure to so many of us. Now, when I think about that stuff, I I get a little uncomfortable, honestly. Some of you may feel a little uncomfortable, even what I've just said. Uh, I'm in this with you. I get uncomfortable because I recognize I don't always use these things for the purposes that at least the scripture describes they're meant for. And, And... Ultimately, I lose sight of it. I, 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 parenthood, that's another, er, another one of these vessels, I, I will confess to you. I, I get into this mentality, I kind of develop a trophy kid mentality. You know, I want my kids to look good because when they look good, I look good. I, 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 I want them to get into the right schools, I want them to be athletes, I want them to be personable because I think it reflects really well on me. And yet, the, the vessel of parenthood is not primarily given to me for that reason. It is given to me so that I might help my kids come to know God, and to live into His character, and to fulfill their potential with their giftedness for the purposes God has for them. Even if they're not my purposes at every moment, or, or, the, or the vessel of vocation, my job. I can sometimes get into thinking that well, it's it's about making a name for myself or about building some kind of an empire for me. But it's not. My job is meant to be an instrument for helping the values of God's kingdom move into other people's lives, and the blessings of God's kingdom move into other people's lives. That's not just true, true for pastors, that's true for, for, for financial professionals, and that's uh, true for homemakers, and that's true for athletes, that we're meant to use this vocation, not just for material things, that's a piece of it. We gotta take care of our families. But ultimately, as, as platforms for influencing this world for good. In the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was a creed of many years ago, the chief end of humanity, the chief purpose of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so let me ask a question that is being seldom asked in America anymore How are we using the sacred vessels? How are we using these things, which God has uncommonly gifted to those of us who live in these United States? Are we using them for his glory, for his kingdom? Or have we lost our way? Have we become like Belshazzar without ever meaning to? The Babylonians really struggled with this. And I think there's something I learned from reading the story of Belshazzar and many like him. When a person isn't honoring God in the use of such uh, sacred things, it it is crazy to think that a mere wall is going to stop God from ultimately addressing the issue. It is crazy to think that we're going to build a wall that is going to actually keep us safe from, from accountability for what it is that we're doing. The Babylonians uh, didn't get that. They, 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 they were absolutely certain that, that if they built enough big temples and palaces and fortifications, they were totally in control of their own destiny. They could safely do just about anything they wanted with the vessels uh, that they had in their hands or other people's vessels. A lot of people today, I submit to you, feel just like that. They think that about America. We are impregnable. We are eternal. We are forever. We are a, God must love us, especially, because we're so wealthy and we've got such stuff going for us. Therefore, we can pretty much do as we choose without a lot of accountability. We'll be around forever. How many of us think that way? How many times do you hear people speaking that way in our time? But the truth is, our walls aren't high enough. They're not thick enough. They're not strong enough. They're not long enough to keep the hand of God from finding us, (laughs) if he feels that the nation or its peoples have in a sustained way misused what it was that he gave them uh, out of his grace. Uh, I I remember a story, just a little story, that that just reminds me of this. It was many years ago, there was this uh, little church, not so little church, it was actually quite a, well renowned church in Montgomery, Alabama, called the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. And uh, they had a very famous pastor there, a fellow na- by the name of Dr. Uh, Vernon Johns. He was an eloquent preacher, he was a sort of a statesman like figure. Um, And people loved him, the people of that church loved him. But as the years went by, uh, Dr. Johns began to feel increasingly uh, called to get more uh, direct and challenging in his message to this largely affluent congregation he had. And he began to talk to them more and more about the responsibility they had to play in a leadership role in the world with what they had been given. And specifically, Dr. Johns said, you know, we got to start speaking up and doing something about racism. There's a great divide in our society that's, that's, that's limiting our capacity as a culture in all kinds of ways. And those of us who have influence, we ought to use it to try and close that divide, is what he said. You should have seen how fast the walls went up against Dr. John's preaching on that subject. The guy had been beloved one minute, 10 minutes later, he is being vilified as... as really almost a dangerous voice in the church as people resisted this particular message. Uh, it was like what I imagine Nebuchadnezzar must have faced when he, got, when he converted to belief in the Jewish God towards the end of his, uh, of his life, as we talked about last week. And so, in this particular church in Montgomery, they decide we got to get rid of this guy. And some influential people mount an ouster movement, and they get rid of this guy. And they go in search of, and I quote, a more traditional pastor, and they find one. And they bring this new pastor into their church, into the within the walls of this a storied church, and they're very happy with him. He's a a thankfully serene, very articulate young man by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) True story. You can't hide from God when he decides the time has come for change. We're not hiding from him. There's no wall hiding enough. High enough, wide enough, long enough, thick enough. If God's hand wants to reach out and bring about a change, He's coming. He's coming. I love how the psalmist puts it, Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit, Lord? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall find me, lead me, hold me. Even there you will hold me fast. And so we read in the... Fifth verse of Daniel, chapter 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and began to write on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. Why near the lampstand? So everybody could read the writing. Okay? and the hand began to write, and the king watched the hand as it wrote on the wall, and his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees began to knock together. Belshazzar the mighty is just petrified by what he's seeing on that wall, and I bet you wanna know what it said. Well, come back next week, because I'm gonna tell you. because you've got places to go in a Bears game. and <laughs> Seriously, we'll finish up next week. It's a great story. <laughs> so let me just close with a single question for you. And, and it's really good I should stop here because it's important to linger with the question before we go there. Here's the question. If God were to appear behind your wall or my wall if god were to decide that he was going to penetrate these these obstacles that we put up to against having to really be fully found out or against having to actually give him full lordship over our lives. If he could get past the tall rationalizations and the, and the thick habits and the long patterns of doing things our way instead of his way. If he could materialize on the vulnerable side of our hearts and our secret securities as once upon a time he appeared behind the walls of a locked room to a group of disciples and reached out with his nail-pierced hands and called them to a whole new world-changing way of life, if he could do it again, if that God is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore, what might he want to write to you and me? What would be the message he might write to you and to me? What would be God's graffiti, in a sense? What sacred vessel might he challenge us to stop using in the way we've been using it and to restore it to its proper use? Uh, what wall of bitterness, prejudice, apathy, selfishness might he say dismantle, start taking it down, start building a bridge to someone else that we need to reach out to? What fortified gate in our hearts or our minds would he call us to blow open and invite him in to establish his eternal kingdom more fully in the decaying empire that exists in here ask the Holy Spirit to tell you to interpret God's word for you invite a friend to talk about that with you perhaps And then for God's sake, and for your sake, and my sake, let's do something about what he tells us. Because the thing that really haunts me when I look at this particular story uh, is that Belshazzar honestly thought he had all the time in the world to respond to the message. God had been patient for so long, he thought, I can think about this for a while. But the text goes on to say, in the very final verse of chapter five, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom, and Babylon was no more. Please pray with me. God, it is a scary thing to contemplate that we might be living amidst the sort of party that Belshazzar threw. It is a a scary thing to consider the the possibility that we are this world's Babylon today. And so God, I just pray that you will speak to us and stir us Um, and we know that if this culture in which we live is is to change for the good, is to fulfill its promise, then some of us who sit in positions of influence, we've got to change first. Thank you that you do choose to come behind the walls that we build. Please help us to open our eyes to what you are writing for each of us to read right now. If you're calling us to repent, Lord, we will repent if you're calling us to restore to their proper use some sacred vessel, God, show us what that that call is and we will respond because we want to respond before the opportunity is passed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.